Welcome to Invest in Yourself, the Digital Entrepreneur Podcast. Join the podcast mogul Phil Better as he interviews successful entrepreneurs that make their living in the digital world. Now, let's join your host, Phil Better, and his special guest today on Invest in Yourself, the Digital Entrepreneur Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Invest in Yourself, the Digital Entrepreneur Podcast. I am, of course, your host with the most Phil Better, and today we have a special guest joining us today. Um, they are doing amazing work. Um, they are a child welfare consultant and former child protective services CPS investigator. And due to the way he saw the system failing parents and families, he decided to fund, found a first of its kind consulting firm called CPS Protect Consulting Services. Their core offer is helping families prepare for and navigate CPS investigations across the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm invest in yourself. Welcome to our guest, Jay Rosenthal. Jay, I got it right. I got the name right. I'm so proud of myself. But Jay. Yes, you did. And that was quite the introduction. Uh, I, I'm typically more humble than that, but you know what? I'll take it. <laughs> See, that's why you guys, this is one of my job. My job is to pump you up, show you how amazing of works you're doing, especially with entrepreneurs, wherever they are in their journey. Um, Jay, I, I, I read off this great intro. Obviously you said you're trying to stay humble here, but feel free to bra be braggadocious if you will. <laughs> um, it is uh, my pleasure to have you on the show. So please, could you give us a bit more of an introduction about who you are? Who I am? Well, I had originally gone to college thinking I was going to be a clinical psychologist. Yeah, it, it, it didn't work out that way. You know, <laughs> between some health issues and otherwise, you know, uh, I got my bachelor's degree. I graduated with honors. And you know what? Great. And I got into the workforce. I tried out. I was a milieu therapist for a while. I was a supportive housing case manager for a while. Then I decided, you know what, I want to go back to working with kids. And child welfare was desperate. Everybody told me, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I started seeing there have been some changes that were made that, you know, I thought would make it safer. And I'm not known to back down from a challenge. And so you might be able to call this a hold my beer moment <laughs> uh, because. I was assigned to, you know, uh, when I went to work for child welfare, uh, I was assigned to the zone that dealt with some of the highest crime neighborhoods in New York City. And I'm also Jewish. Anti-Semitism has been at an all-time high in New York. It's so not really great. No, the highest <laughs> crime rate um, with a, a name like Jay Rosenthal, of, uh, Rosenthal sorry, um, obviously a Jewish background, going into these high neighborhoods, dealing with volatile situations, because no one really wants to deal with CPS. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, not only that, I remember uh, a couple of cases where the family refused to work with me because they assumed based on my last name that I was Jewish and they would not have a Jew in the home. Uh, okay. So. That I didn't even, I didn't even like, I didn't even figure that level. Like it. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it, people obviously don't want to deal with CPS because hmm. what, 
what happens is when a, uh, when a CPS investigator receives a case and they're dispatched and they go out to uh, to the home and they knock on your door typically at uh, typically at the same time that a uh, a telemarketer would call you you're having Something. dinner. <laughs> wow. Oh, you're just, just winning it, it, all the bags here. There's all it, the bags. Just as inconvenient. Absolutely. And, and, and so just by knocking on your door and flashing my badge without saying a word, this is the message I'm sending. Hi, someone told the government that you're a bad parent and I'm here to find out why. May I come in? <laughs> How is that going to make you feel? This is why I tend to describe CPS investigations as among the most frightening experiences any parent can endure. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're not gonna get a good reaction. I mean, I was called every name in the, uh, you know, every name in the book, you know, some, uh, some days at least three times before lunch. <laughs> uh, you know, I had hang up calls, I had death threats, uh, you name it. Uh, obviously I wasn't wanted, but somehow in this complete mess, I'd I'd found my calling. If you'd if you can even fathom how that could make sense in another universe, it's. But I did because what I loved being able to do. Most of the families that most of the cases that were called in were unsubstantiated. These were not families in crisis, but there were families in crisis, and even then we were required by law to do a whole investigation, assess safety every time a report was accepted by the state hotline and sent to us. We didn't have a say in the matter. And so I loved being able to go in and find out, okay, what, uh, how do I make, uh, you know, how do I get this family to want to work with me for a reason other than if you don't work with me, I'll take you to court. Because here's the dirt, here's the dirty little secret that most CPS agencies really don't admit, at least not any CPS agency I've ever heard of, which is if you actually want to facilitate meaningful change, you, uh, the family has to want to change because essentially child welfare, when they go in, they're holding a metaphorical gun to your head and telling you, to, uh, and telling you there are going to be consequences if you don't comply. But as soon as that threat is removed, it's human nature to return to the status quo. So if you don't want the family to return to the status quo, you have to find a reason other than the threat that you hold over them, or you have to hold it over them forever. Which then loses its potency because it's like, well, regardless, I always will have this threat and they haven't pulled the trigger yet. So. Yeah, ab absolutely. And so after a while, it, 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 I started to, you know, things started to not make sense based on the professed goals versus what I was actually seeing. And the best way it can be summarized is if you've, uh, have you ever been audited by the IRS or tried to renew your driver's license or your ID at the DMV? 
Uh, I, I live in Canada, so I haven't been by the IRS, but I've had to redo my uh, my license and my health card. So, yes, I've done uh, dealing with the government. Yeah, absolutely. And in Canada, how did that go for you? How was that experience? Was it, it was very streamlined? Was it quick? Was it easy? Did it require a lot of paperwork? No paperwork? They, uh, luckily for the renewal of my, pa uh, my, uh, my driver's license, since it's a regular thing every, every year I have to pay, it was really streamlined because it comes straight out of my bank, but my health card did fall out of date. So that was a lot of work. Exactly. Uh, 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 there are some things that the government tends to do well, granted, usually those are things that you can count on one hand, but <laughs> when you say to the government here, you have the responsibility to make sure that all parents are protecting their children and that they're doing the right thing and make sure that, you know, if something is going wrong, you act quickly and you resolve, you get those conditions resolved and you do it efficiently. The idea that child welfare is going to be so much better than any other government department is laughable. Mm -hmm. It's not. They will hold you in just as much contempt. They are just as inefficient. They are just as bureaucratic and political as any other government agency that exists. So if you think the tax man or the, you know, or the health department or the parks department or the Department of Homeless Services are going to be any better than CPS or the CPS is going to be any better than them, the answer is not a chance. It's just that there is a different purpose to it. And unfortunately, when you're talking about child protective services, it's your family that's at stake. And those are extraordinarily high stakes. Traditionally, fam uh, family, and in particular your kids, rank pretty high up on what people care about. So what it comes down to is, at least in the United States, it's a problem of liability in politics because there is little to no consequence for the government if they say, we found a minor safety concern, a very minor safety concern. We're going to remove the child. And then we can work this out in family court or juvenile court and make sure that the safety conditions are resolved. And yeah, it may take six months or it may take 10 months or it may take two years, but at least we did something. And rather than, okay, you know what? This is a minor safety concern. The family can resolve it on their own. Uh, I'm closing the case. And then something happens then not only are you pretty much losing your job, you could be prosecuted. Uh, the people above you are going to be losing their jobs. So what ends up happening is there's a lot more incentive to take invasive action based on liability than not to. And that results in an overreaction, a disproportionate reaction that holds families to a standard that is, in particular, parents, holds parents to a standard 
that is almost perfection. Because how do you define appropriate supervision? How do you define abuse? How do you define neglect? How do you define the minimum standard of care? The answer is they're not particularly well-defined, so it depends on how CPS feels in particular or about particularly it. Particularly the agent doing the taking the case or investigating. Exactly. And so if combine that with liability and that the salaries and contracted services in particular, you know, in particular are funded by reimbursements from the federal government, taxpayer dollars, the unions and the contracted agencies, because sometimes, at least in the U.S., Child Protective Services doesn't provide prevention services or the foster care services directly every time. Sometimes they pay nonprofit agencies an enormous amount of money to do it on their behalf. So what happens is you see policies crafted at the top because how do you get more funding for your agency? You say, well, we spent all this money. We don't have any money left. We need more. And look at what we're doing. So this this is where you see a lot in the anti-CPS crowd say that Child Protective Services is trafficking kids. And how I tend to respond to that is there is some truth to it if you follow the money, but most of it is politics and um, and friendships between the business to government contracting private sector and uh, and the government. Usually, at least in the U.S., when the government spends on something, it's a lot more expensive because of all the regulations uh, imposed on government than it is in the private sector. So those contracts are extraordinarily lucrative. Uh, So yes, the money is an issue. And then you have a law called the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which says it it, it was originally during the Clinton administration, uh, it was enacted. And what it says to the states is, we don't want children lingering in foster care. Uh, So what we're going to say is, if a child has been in foster care for 12 of the past 15 months, then you have to file a termination of parental rights. Uh, And some states do it earlier. West Virginia is the worst offender in the U.S. of this. Uh, Arizona is not far behind. So what uh, what ends up happening is based on minor safety concerns, you have parents who lose their children legally. Uh, Many families call this the death penalty of child welfare, and I think it's a fairly accurate description. So after a while of all this paperwork and all this uh, focusing on liability and doing your, uh, you know, doing the minimum that you needed to do, I thought, what am I doing here? Because you don't go into human services to make seven figures. If you do that, you know, don't go into entrepreneurship either. (laughs) <laughs> because if you need to follow the money, um, it takes a long time it, to make that money. And you follow it into social services. Uh, you know what? I, I, I'm just going to say this: maybe following the money is not what is not where is not the direction that you're looking at going in. Uh, so 
if if you're not there, you know, if you're not making seven figures and you're not actually helping families, then the question is, what are you doing? Why are you there? And I could not for the life of me answer that question, at least not in a way that made any sense. I mean, I'm sure I could make up some nonsense. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I see plenty of people who spew nonsense on a, you know, on a regular basis. So it's not hard to make up nonsense, but if you want it to make sense and you want to believe in what you're doing, that's never going to be enough. So that brought me to three options. In the U.S., Child Protective Services is entirely, uh, it's entirely controlled at the state level. So if you, you know, so if I wanted to do the equivalent elsewhere, well, guess what? I'd still be working for the government. So this became a problem because I'd found my calling. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And I'd actually had an acute subdural hematoma back in 2017 and somehow survived. I, I, I didn't know what my purpose was, you know, at the time. We're talking 2022 now. And I have, uh, rather, 2021. And here I found, okay, maybe this is why I survived what should have been death. Um, and I had three options. I can stay in my calling and just make the best of a bad situation, deal with the conditions that I, you know, that have been set and do my absolute best. I can leave my calling entirely, which Obviously, I really didn't want to do. I mean, it was my calling. I'm not sure that needs further explanation. Or create what I thought was needed out of thin air. And so obviously you decided to create this consulting firm or service to help parents navigate CPS. Yes. And it just so happened that right after I'd written the business plan in August of 2021, yeah, I was diagnosed with three rare conditions uh, when I, you know, when I was, uh, and right after uh, one of them causes epileptic seizures. One of the, uh, so after I'd written my business plan, this was in mid-August. Then August thirtieth, I had I had a follow-up appointment with my specialist, and she says, "Jay, I think we're going to need to explore surgical options." <laughs> so i said you know what okay i'm gonna continue i'm gonna continue down this path and you know what we're gonna explore surgical options because i can either maintain the status quo or i can potentially have a better life so you know what let's do both so here i am looking at okay so we're gonna explore doing brain surgery while i'm preparing to launch a business so let's uh, let's fast forward we did a whole bunch of exploratory tests, uh, including uh, surgery where they put, for about 28 days, they put electrodes through my skull into my brain to pinpoint exactly where the seizures were coming from. Jeez. Yeah, that was, that was pretty challenging. And so I left 
Child Protective Services in early April. And dur during this time, I'd actually been working on setting up CPS Protect Consulting Services, so doing all the you know, legal and regulatory logistics. And so after they figure out where the seizures are coming from, they say, you know what? Okay, so we're meeting, you know, it's too much risk to remove that part of the brain. So what we're going to do is we're going to implant essentially what's uh, what can best be described as a pacemaker for the brain inside your head. And we're going to do it Thursday, May 17th. So, uh, sorry, it was Thursday, May 19th. And I said, and here was my thinking, you know what? I'm ready to launch. If we're going to do that Thursday, why don't I set my launch date for Monday, the 23rd? <laughs> uh, and yeah, it sounds like a great idea. So the surgery is on the, you know, on the 19th. It goes well. Uh, I'm discharged at about noon on the 20th. That's Friday. Uh, Sunday, headaches start to hit me. And Sunday night, I have, I haven't had night terror since I was a kid. I had night terror Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. And my head was also killing me. Well, yeah, uh, you just had so, surgery, so understandable. Yes, brain surgery, mind you. They opened up my head. Uh, played around in there. And yes, literally four days later, I was, you know, I had set my launch date and I paid dearly that first week. I had to make some very serious changes to the way that I was doing things. And I realized this. And so my first lesson in business wasn't something business related. It was something that most people would consider common sense, which is if you're going to launch a business, Wait at least a week until after your uh, wait until at least a week after you're discharged from the hospital for brain surgery. At least yeah, a week. At least a week. Yeah, that sounds like some common <laughs> sense. You know, sometimes entrepreneurs we get we get ahead of ourselves and we think we can do it all. So yeah, I can understand understand that piece of advice. Yes, just this just describing it, I can feel it. Uh, if anything, you know, I didn't leave that experience empty-handed though. Because the ability to tell stories is so important in sales, in networking, in business in general. And that's a story you don't often hear. No. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, granted, I don't recommend forcing a story like this. I think no. I, I, what I did was obviously dumb, but, uh, and I got lucky in how I handled it. I don't recommend that people follow in my footsteps, you know, and take this as gospel, but it is a good story to tell. And the fact that you're laughing, it, you know, shows its utility as an icebreaker and as something that is engaging and in particular, interesting. No, I have to fully agree with you. It's a, it's, it's a, as an icebreaker, it's like one of the best stories. Hey, um, what was the hardest time in your life? Oh, well, after I had surgery, I tried to launch a company. Uh, <laughs> let me preface that I had brain surgery because, you know, beforehand I wasn't crazy enough to do it afterwards. I was even crazier. Uh, but th that, that is insane. So after seeing the issues that were arising and obviously the government covering their buttocks, 
uh, due to not wanting to be sued and lose and people lose their jobs, you decided to create CPS Protect Consulting Services to help families not lose their kids and stop the 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 losing lose pretty much that the situation was created by CPS. Um, what was what were some of the wins that you got from uh, in helping your clients? See, that is really interesting. First of all, I get more thank yous than I ever got doing uh, conducting investigations. Uh, I have to say there is a lot less paperwork considering I've designed the entire workflow myself. <laughs> um, isn't that the best though that you don't have to do something in triplicate um, anymore? <laughs> it can automatically do it automatically. It does it itself. We don't have to do it. Well, uh, well, what I did was, uh, you know, in creating CPS Protect, I actually, uh, uh, and in some ways, this has made it a little more difficult to pivot. It, not impossible, but more difficult. I actually designed the concept first, and then I went shopping for the tools that I was going to need to make it happen. And yes, that creates something that's very streamlined, but it makes it, it, you have to do more work to adapt just because you've made everything work so well together. Now, I remember uh, my first case, uh, my first client, which came about three weeks after I launched. And they actually were a little deeper into things. They were, their kids had been removed. They were in court. But I made it work, and they actually shared the personalized plans that we created with their attorneys, and it did make a difference. Uh, I remember I did a preemptive consultation with uh, a client in November, and they described their experience as like having CPS come in without any of the consequences, and so being able to exceed the, make sure that they exceed the minimum standard of care and know what information they should or shouldn't share, how they go, you know, how they go about it before CPS even shows up. It made them feel more confident. It takes, you know, they felt less scared. Uh, and that was really important is when you have, when CPS shows up, people don't realize you're not, you're so frightened. You're not thinking clearly. You're, you're thinking based on your emotion and it's, well, how do I impress the CPS investigator? How do I, you know, how do I show that I'm a good parent? Well, how you define a good parent, how CPS defines a good parent are probably not exactly the same. So if you try to do that, the CPS investigator is there looking for evidence that the allegations are true, not that the allegations are not true. So if you tell them why it's not true, that's not going to make much of a difference. But if they have less evidence, that, and they don't meet the burden of proof, they don't meet the standard of evidence, uh, then they're a lot less likely to substantiate the case. So if, you, so if you know how to control the information that you share and you have these personalized plans that we create, it is very easy. You don't have to think as much. And that's really important. One of the things, when I, cre when I created CPS Protect, it needed to be scalable and it needed to be replicable. Because one mistake that a lot of business owners tend to make is that their business can't actually uh, can't actually get to the point where it functions without them, particularly in services, because 
they are the experts and you can't train anybody else to do it. And that's a problem. So the way that we go about it is we'll have a free introductory call, for example, and the client will explain and we'll use our inclusion and exclusion criteria to determine whether or not we can be a good, we are a good fit. And the, you know, once we do that, you know, we issue the invoice, our client service agreement, and we schedule them with, we schedule clients within a day. We do this in very short form, sometimes the same day. Uh, and we essentially do what child protective services would do. We go in, we look at the same things, we ask the same questions, and then we have these templates that we call them the personalized plans for each service. So let's say someone orders a preemptive consultation, a home assessment, and a risk assessment. Uh, and you fill this in. This includes your safety assessment, an assessment of your home, the risk factors that are most likely to trigger a CPS investigation, according to the CDC, uh, or uh, trigger another investigation in the future to address those conditions. Uh, we have recommendations as to you know, as to what you need to do based on your specific circumstances. And we get a really good view of the family. And the reason we do this all virtually by, by video conference in terms of meeting with the family, it's less expensive. And it means that we can respond in the time frame that most families would expect. Uh, it makes it very easy to have a quick response and those personalized plans are so detailed and so important that we've had families say it's uh, you know I we I had a family uh, a client who said it felt like you were right there with me and with the conflict of interest laws it's very difficult to actually be right there with someone as well so this allows us to do this typically the only assist you know assistance that a family would have is they could hire a private attorney who might ask for a five thousand or ten thousand dollar retainer and it might end up costing you 50k a lot of people can't afford that uh you know or if god forbid your kids are removed or your case is taken to court well then you get a court appointed attorney who's got 87 other cases and has this script that he goes through he may not even really have the time to even ask you about your case, except maybe five minutes before court each time to remind him of the basics. And so it's not really quality representation. So for us, we come in on the policy side during the investigation stage or ideally before that. And the most that the most expensive thing that we have right now that you would do would be the preemptive consultation, home assessment, and risk assessment, which together those three services are 600 bucks once. And that's it. That is a big difference when it comes to having that peace of mind. And I think that is so important. And even then, we also, because look, we're in a recession. It's very hard. This was, you know, the entrepreneur and me thinking. Blogs are typically free, but what we did was we launched a paid subscription blog called CPS Knowledge, which as it continues to grow is becoming basically a do-it-yourself repository 
of infor general information and recommendations on specific allegations, policies, uh, you know, and issues in CPS, as well as laws that you can search, uh, you can search through, which has become our downsell. So it could be as low as four ninety nine a month for that. So if you can't afford five hundred, six hundred bucks, well, maybe you can afford four ninety nine a month and the ability to do it yourself through lots of uh, lots of searchable articles that have helpful information you can't find anywhere else. So there's been a lot of thought that's come into this. I think the other thing that's important to note here is that social entrepreneurship has traditionally been characterized by three camps. One is those who go get a big fat business to government contract to solve a social problem, but I don't think that begging the go you know begging the government for money to spend on something is a pro you know is a profitable venture in the eyes of social entrepreneurship, but some people say it is. Uh, there are those who create, for example, cheaper medical devices like an ultrasound, uh, you, know, a, you know, a cheaper portable ultrasound or other medical imaging device to be deployed to rural third world countries that might not be able to afford the infrastructure for a traditional uh, imager that improves the lives of patients in those areas. And I think that's really great. That's great social entrepreneurship. Here, CPS Protect has no connection to the government. Uh, we receive no government funding at all. We are entirely dependent on our cash flow from our clients. So we want to actually help level the playing field, make it so that parents aren't at a deficit in an investigation, uh, that they are better able to preserve their rights and protect their families. It's And to do that without, you know, begging the taxpayer, I think is extremely important to threading the needle. You know, you do have some people who say, who are philanthropic, they say, if I, for every pair of shoes that I make, you know, I'm going to donate another pair of shoes, you know, to someone in need. Well, I think that's great. I don't see that as social entrepreneurship. I think we need to actually solve these problems in the private sector. And it's so, you know, it's so important to do. That's why, you know, for example, the Public Benefit Corporation, the PBC, is getting more and more popular, is you shouldn't have to go through all the regulatory loopholes to be in nonprofit status, for nonprofit status, to actually facilitate the social entrepreneurial change that I think is really becoming more and more popular, uh, you know, in business nowadays. Uh, because I've seen some, you know, I've seen some really good nonprofits and some really corrupt nonprofits. And, uh, you know, I've seen the same thing, you know, in the for-profit world. The fact of the matter is nonprofit and for-profit, you know, I think for-profit gets a really bad rap because people think that all nonprofits, sometimes they characterize them as 501c3s, as charities. But there are m m many nonprofits that are not charities. 
their 501c6s, you know, but they're not 501c3s. And that's really important is nonprofit and for-profit statuses are nothing more than corporate tax structures. And whether you're in the U.S. or Canada, that stands true. Um, I, I want to uh, move on because we are coming close to the end here. Um, Jay, I would love to have a tip for people going from uh, a typical nine to five job working for the government to starting their own social entrepreneur venture. Do you have any tips for uh, some some of our audience that's listening, looking to do that? Oh, yes. I would say make sure you are in compliance with all of the conflict of interest laws because those will persist even after you leave. You know, you are going to have to, if you're going to support your venture with another job, if it's going to be a side hustle for a while, make sure what you're doing does not conflict, does not make sure your new venture doesn't conflict with what you're doing for the government because they will ruin you very quickly. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I shouldn't have to say that, but it's very easy to get caught up in the hype and forget about the conflict of interest laws. Uh, but they do exist. The second thing that I would say is I think you need to, uh, if you think you're going to understand, you know, and be prepared for the trials and tribulations that are ahead of you, you're kidding yourself. You can be resilient, but if you think that you're not going to struggle or you think that you're prepared for every struggle that you're going to hit, you're not. And it took me some time to actually be able to understand that. Uh, I was, uh, I thought I was more prepared than I was. And there is no way to comprehend it. Uh, you know, for entrepreneurial ventures that are, uh, that are successful, social or not, uh, you know, uh, the way I see it is, if it is going to be successful at all, you have to, you, you essentially have to pay the price of admission to the so-called social entrepreneurial gods. Uh, and so at least for a while, it's going to you know, it, it's going to suck. It's going to be really difficult. And the cold hard truth is when the clients do start to come, if they do, uh, you're trading one set of stressors and anxieties for another. Uh, so it's not as if it's just smooth sailing for you once, you know, once things do take off. Uh, and that's really, that's really important to think about because it's very easy to get caught up in your mission, in your calling and not actually think about all of this. But so uh, entrepreneurship in general was not glorified until the rise of social media where the, most successful ones got a lot more exposure, but the reality is it is a pretty brutal experience, especially in the beginning. It is not for most people, for those that, you know, for those that do it, you know, and are a good fit, I say, go for it, you know, because otherwise you're always going to wonder what you could have done, but it's really important to keep in mind 
the blood, sweat, and tears that you're going to have. You're not going to have a pension. You're not going to have somebody paying your health insurance. You're not going to have a guarantee, you know, a guaranteed income. And the responsibilities are all going to fall on you. It's sink or swim. So make sure before you take that jump, you think long and hard about what you about what you're going to uh, what you're going to do. Those are some great, great tips, uh, Jay. And we're going to hit with the last question. It's the spark question of the uh, show from Seek Discomfort. Um, As you know, it's from the Yes Theory family. So what is the hardest lesson you learned this past year? (sighs) The hardest lesson I learned was... Sometimes, sometimes you just, you can't thread the needle and you do have to adjust and it's never pretty when you have to admit it. For me, I love the idea of figuring out, well, how can I make everything work? How can I do that? But sometimes the truth is you just can't. And you have to understand what that means. It's, it, it's not comfortable. It's not a fun experience. But it is survival. And in entrepreneurship, you have to be open to pivoting and especially for social entrepreneurs who think they have the answer it is the hardest thing to see that maybe what you're doing needs a little more fine-tuning when you put your blood just because you put your blood sweat and tears into something it doesn't mean that everybody is going to admonish you for it. In fact, their first response is always going to be, who the hell are you? And why should I care? They're not going to say it in that way. Most people are nicer than that. But essentially, that that is the way that things go. And you have to be willing to adapt to that. If anything that I learned from it, it was that seeking constructive feedback, constructive criticism, that is the most valuable thing that an entrepreneur can get. Because especially if it comes from your target market, that is literally your target market telling you what they want and what you need to do to give it to them. And if you're not listening, you are guaranteed to fail. Great, great advice. Uh, Jay, I'm going to jump off the screen here. I'm going to let you let the audience know where they can uh, connect with you. And uh, if uh, any of my audience is listening that have friends or family that's dealing with CPS, please do uh, send them this episode. But Jay, the floor is yours. So if you're interested in preserving your rights and protecting your family. Uh, CPS Protect 
consulting services serves the entire United States. You can find us online at cpsprotect.com, uh, where you can also schedule a free introductory call. Uh, you can find us, uh, you can also call us by phone at 844-633-KIDS. That's toll free, 844-633-5437. In addition, we're also reachable by email at contact at cpsprotect.com. For an overview of our services, visit cpsprotect.com. Jay, um, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, I can't thank you enough for having this service to help families in these situations dealing with CPS and all the uh, triggering events that can come around from it. So I want to thank you um, for creating this company, this consulting service for families dealing with it and keeping it at a reasonable rate so that families can uh, get the help that they need. Absolutely. It was my pleasure coming on, Phil. To my audience, as you know, you need to check the show notes down below and you'll find all the links to Jay's company, the CPS Protect Consulting Services, which is doing a lot of great work helping families. And as always, you know, to invest in yourself. <laughs>